Right, we are here in Barnum in West Sussex, not far away from the coast, and I am going to go and meet Tristan Gooley, who is the so-called natural navigator. He's the Sherlock Holmes of natural navigation, and he uses symbols from nature in order to get around basically which is something that i don't know anything about so it's going to be very interesting um all i know is that he lives northwest of the station so i'm going to try and figure out using the few things i do know where northwest is from here so i know the sun rises in the east and sets in the west so so i reckon okay so i think i know i reckon that's west over there and then i know that if you look at leaves on the tree they should be pointing vaguely south <laughs> so, in, according to that, I would say that we are going to be heading vaguely in that direction, is what I think. So yeah, let's go and see what, what Tristan has to say. After a walk down a country road and a phone call to a local taxi firm, and maybe one or two wrong turns here or there, we finally made it to Tristan's Forestry Commission office. So this is basically a hut, tucked down along this dirt track in the middle of the woods. On the face of it, Tristan has what I would call a storybook job, locking himself away in this solitary building with stacks and stacks of books about natural history and navigation and geography. And he spends his days here just reading and writing and walking around this beautiful surrounding forest. He approaches me with a grin, a clamped handshake and a heavy coat. Hello, hi, Greg. Hi. Greg. Nice to meet you, Tristan. So you found us all right, or have you been all over Sussex? Just about. <laughs> what exactly do you have in store for us today? We're going to go for a bit of a walk in my, my local woods, and um, it's not, this isn't going to be a sort of, you know, death-defying challenge. <laughs> it is really what I'd like to share with you, is how natural navigation is a way of seeing a all the things that, that people typically miss. So, you know, where we are here, we've got quite a good example. If we just have a, a quick look around, I think it'd be fair to say that the, the typical walker or traveller would have walked along what we just did there. And it's quite easy to, to let your brain just take a shortcut and say, this is just green. But if you just look along here, you'll notice the green actually changes. Every sort of 10, 10 metres or so, we're getting a change. And that's that's because of varying light levels. Mm. So we've come along um, a very simple track, um, lots and lots of green around us, but subtleties within that green. We've got lots of bracken, which, which I think um, uh, everyone recognizes. But if we just take that bracken, for example, it's not growing vertically. Mm. Can you see how there's a, there's a bit of a, a lean to it? Yep. Uh, which way is it leaning? Towards the south. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not. It's really not not that not that complex, is it? Um, and people are quite shocked by that. But if if we think about it, it's all logical. All the leaves we're seeing here, the bracken uh, and and dozens of other other plants. There's a hazel tree there. There are beeches beyond it. Um, those leaves, they're only there for one reason, and that's to harvest the sun's light and energy. So they are all oriented towards that light. Yeah. Um, so all it takes is just just spotting that detail, and we, we've got dozens of compasses within within a stone's throw. Yeah, well, I feel like I'm already an expert. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been doing this for? Uh, full time for ten years, uh, but part time all my life. Wow. Without long before I knew much about the word navigation, I was I was one of those kids that would enjoy putting 
little journeys together. So I can I can remember distinctly being a sort of nine, ten, eleven year old who'd see a hill and think it might be fun at the top and sort of trying to get permission from my parents to go and go and do it, and then mucking about in little boats. Uh, and all that really happened was the journeys got a bit longer and a bit more ambitious until you know they were maybe a thousand miles instead of a, a few hundred yards um and that that you know i worked out that navigation was the the key to being able to shape your own journeys i i now say to people on every single journey you're either a navigator or a passenger mm. and and there's nothing wrong with being a passenger but it's quite fun to have that choice yeah 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 definitely do you do you like ever use your smartphone to navigate around yeah, I'm not. I'm not in any way a, a technophobe. I think it's amazing. You know, you know, GPS, which underpins it all, has completely changed all travellers' lives. There are situations where, you know, if I'm late for a meeting in town and you know, getting horribly disorientated, you know, I'm really grateful for things like a car sat nav. But if I'm on a, you know, walk in the woods like we are now, staring at a screen, you know, that I, I feel like I'm being robbed. <laughs> yeah. 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 So are there any clues that right now I should be looking out for? Because I'm, I'm so switched off to natural navigation that I'm not kind of even really perceiving anything. But I imagine there's a billion clues right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, starting at the most obvious end, we all know what a path looks like. And it looks like a path because it's worn. Mm. But actually, in lots of places, you can tell whether people walk there because the plants change. Uh, let me, let's just have a look down here. So we just pause here at the edge of the path. Um, our friend, the stinging nettle. Yep. Um, and this is a good example of starting to use plants to make a map because there's a temptation to think common plants like stinging nettles will grow anywhere but actually they've all got their niche they've all got their place that they're they're happy to grow that they'll be successful in in the case of the stinging nettle it needs soil that has lots of phosphates in human beings make the soil richer in phosphates so that stinging nettle there is a sign that that people have been here right how do human beings make it richer in phosphate? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, pretty much everything we do makes the soil richer in phosphate. So if you start with the most basic things people do in a, in a wild environment, when you make a fire, you go and gather you know, wood from a wide area. Mm. That wood has low levels of phosphate. We put it all in one place, set fire to it. You come back in two years, there'll be stinging nettles because we've put more phosphate into that patch of, of the earth's surface. Mm. But it's, it's true of almost everything we do. Keeping animals so you get nettles all the way around farms. Um, yeah, there's a rather macabre example that, you know, our, our bodies are actually very rich in phosphates. So um, if a human being was, was, was buried down there and you, you came back in 100 years, there'd be, you know, five or six feet long thing of bed of stinging nettles. Wow. Yeah. So if the impact of humans on a path means that we see certain plants like nettles and dock leaves, does that mean that we're only seeing quite a small portion of the kind of biodiversity of, of an area? Yes and no. Uh, if, we, if we think of animals for a second, we think of insects. I mean, how often ha have all of us had that situation where we start to dislike a place because of the flies and other insects? Uh, and those, those insects are attracted to the same things we are. So if you take, you're quite often it's water, uh, water and nutrients. So if we take somewhere where there's not, not much of either, like the desert, one of the most effective ways, and something I've used in the Sahara, to work out you're getting close to if not civilization, then, then an oasis of some sort, uh, is a sudden change in the insect levels. I'm now like trying to tune into clues. I'm seeing <laughs> this, like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll put you on the spot yeah. early then, Greg. Oh. Have, a, have a look um, <laughs> just here. You'll, you'll, you'll recognize um, some, familiar, some familiar fruits Black there, fruits. I'm sure. 
Yeah, now think laterally. If you had to make a compass out of that fruit, what, what, you know, what thoughts would go through your head? So we're trying to find out which way is north south. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I suppose the obvious first thing would be to think what direction are the kind of branches, what, what direction are they pointing in? Yeah. I suppose, because you yeah. said earlier that it's south. So if they're pointing towards the south, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, good. So yeah, that, you're, you're, you're well on the right track. If we get any sweet fruit in the wild, that sweetness is it's obviously nature's sugars. That energy mm-hmm. has only come from one place. It's the sun. Yeah. So the sweeter a fruit is, the more likely it is to be in a south-facing place. Right, should we give it a go? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there's one there. That tastes fairly sweet to me. Yeah, a little, decent little bit of sweetness. Yeah. Now, if we look over here, um, the little bits we've got... They I'm, look as appetizing. No, I was going to you know, be mean and ask you to taste that yeah, one, yeah. but we can guess. No, no, I'll, I'll give it a go. <laughs> this one down here. Yeah, it's really bitter. That's horrible. <laughs> so have you seen, doing what you do, have you seen, because of people's reliance on sat-navs and mobile phones and things like that, is there a kind of resurgence in people wanting to get back to basics and back to being able to navigate using nature? Yeah, I, I, I feel that, um, you know, us humans have a tendency to overshoot in everything and I think I think what we're seeing in in navigation and then natural navigation is similar to what we've seen in food so for thousands of years the human goal was to keep starvation at bay uh, and it's still a challenge in many parts of the world of course but in in many western societies we've overshot the mark in in just a few decades you know, we, we've gone from fighting starvation to fighting obesity. Yeah. And that's, um, that's been a, accompanied by um, an appreciation that, you know, it's not all about fast food. Just because we can, you know, produce 2,000 calories for, you know, 20 pence doesn't mean we should or that we should eat it. And, and that's led to a renaissance in, you know, simpler cooking, relying on um, quality ingredients, reconnecting. Um, you know, because there were times when people thought nobody would cook at home again. And that, that now seems crazy because it's such a fundamental part of who we are. And in navigation, it's, it's the same. You know, just because we can get from A to B using computers the whole time doesn't mean we should because we miss all the richness. Um, and navigating is a fundamental part of being human. Yeah. Do, do you think... Because it kind of feels like the way Britain's going, for example it's not actually a huge part of a lot of people's lives on a day-to-day level navigating um so it's hard to imagine like in the future there will be a time where people really need to use it on a day-to-day level all of the time for me navigation is a very practical thing but it's also a philosophical thing you know all of us at various times in our life go how on earth did we get here yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) you just wake up in the morning look in the mirror and go I didn't mean to be here at all. Um, and, and in both a physical and a, and a philosophical sense, you know, that's part of my work is reminding people that without wanting to sound too sort of trite, you know, life is a journey and the more interest we take in getting from A to B, we've got to choose the B and then we've got to choose how we get there. And, mm. and if we choose a fun way of getting to B, even if we don't get to B, we might have a lot more, you know, a lot more interesting times on the way. So what kind of techniques should I be employing in London? Well, there's, there's a lot of fun to be had with both nature and um, 
you know, more sort of industrial clues or, or more urban ones, certainly. So a bit of fun I have is if I've got a tiny bit of time to spare and I'm going to a place I don't know in London, I get off two tube stops early, having noted roughly where my destination is relative to it, let's say, you know, a kilometre northeast of a new tube station. Then before I get on the tube, I have a look at the clouds, notice which way they're going. And then when you get off the, the tube station, have another glance at the sky and you can use the clouds to find find your destination. Does that work? It gets you pretty close. I, I have been late for the odd meeting, I'll confess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, but the, um, the more cultural clues are actually, I think, some of the most fun ones. So if you're, let's say, you're looking for a station, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably a, a bit off the pace because I don't go to London enough, but they certainly used to be called Boris bikes. What are they called these days? Yeah, people still call them Boris yeah, bikes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, if you're looking for a station, you're scanning all around and you can't see it, you know, if you see some Boris bikes, chances are just around that corner are the, is the station. Yeah. Um, if you're completely lost in a city you, you know, you don't know at all well, and all you want to do is, again, find some hub, some, you know, some point that you can use to get your bearings, um, then if you go against the flow of people in the morning or with the flow of people in the late afternoon, you'll find a station. Mm. I was given a tip on the underground for a bit of navigation. Do you know how to decide where to stand on the platform for the doors to open oh i've heard this and i've forgotten it tell me so it's, it's also the yellow line stand back from the line oh yeah and if you have a look at the bit it's slightly more faded every two meters or so oh, and yeah. that's the bit where the door opens so well you know when you get that smug the smug person who looks like they know exactly where to stand yeah it will be because of that i love that <laughs> no i love that the reason i love that is because it uh, it's bound to work and also because it it sort of it stems from what we're seeing here you know if we just pause for a second here grab a one of those florets and squeeze it between your thumb and finger and have a good sniff oh yeah what does that smell of to you is it kind of citrus yes yeah it's like lemon or lime or something yeah, yeah. it's um it's uh, it's known as pineapple weed ah have you come across this one i've heard of it yeah and it's um it's one of these plants that thrives where there's a bit of footfall. So there's no plant that I'm aware of that loves to be stepped on, but most plants really can't take it at all. So if we look at all the plants you can see out there, if you walk over them, they'll die. They, they can't cope with it. But wherever one group of plants really struggles, another group effectively sort of says, all right, move over, this is, this is for me. So it's, a, it's an ecological niche. And pineapple weed um, is a sign of, of footfall. I mean, we know that we're, we're on the edge of a path here, but there are times where you're like trying to work out which is the right way to go. If you're in a semi-wild location, you know some people have walked from, you know, point A across a hill to point B, and you're halfway across that hill and you've lost the path, then there are certain plants. Clover's another one. Again, what looks like random green is actually sending quite a strong signal that this is where people have passed before us. So if you ever get lost in the forest and you see some pineapple weed, you know at least someone else has got lost there before. Yeah, and then you can walk on and, and find their skeleton further yeah. on, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Greg, if you're... Um, I haven't, to be fair, given you a, 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 full, a full sort of bag of tools to go with yet, but just so we get a feel for, for what it's like to have nothing and, and trying to find your way, I'll just say that, you know, if we're to get back to where we started, which would be nice, you know, and I told you that's southwest of here, um, how are you going to, what's your... Uh, <laughs> so my, my, my instinct is, what I just did was lick my finger and hold it in the air, because I know that 
the, the prevailing wind is southwesterly. Yeah. Well, at least, but I haven't actually checked the wind today, Good. so I don't know if that's correct. But that would probably be my one of my initial things that I would I do. The one tip I give people is start at the top. By which I mean, if you can get any help from the sun or if it's the night, the stars, mm. you want to bag that because I made the mistake in the early days. You kind of like getting really excited, crawling around looking at lichens. When, the, when my shadow's all around me, and then I get up five minutes later and the sun's gone behind the clouds for six hours. So where would you expect the sun to be, you know, roughly? What direction would you expect the sun to be at, at this sort so of time? It's, it's currently just three o'clock on the dot. Um, so the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. So I'd expect it to be southwest direction, yeah, I guess, yeah. pretty much. So if I'm looking at the shadows, I guess they'll be pointing northeast. So I need yeah. to go opposite to the direction that the shadows are pointing in. Very good, very good. Um, full marks. The sun is one of those things that, you know, you want to start exactly as you did there with some nice, uh, what I think of as anchors, have some understanding where it rises and sets. Uh, and then it's just a case of you've got your anchors, which ones are you between? And as you did quite rightly there, you said it's as simple as we're in the afternoon. The sun is due south in the middle of the day. That's one anchor. It's going to set somewhere in the west. We don't need to be too precise at the moment. And it's between those two. So it's going to be somewhere between south and west. We're very roughly, not quite, halfway between the two. So southwest is a very good rough gauge. For our sort of exercise, I think you did brilliantly there. As we go, I might ask you to, to find direction without using the sun and, okay. and push you a bit there. All right, you're on. <laughs> so from my earlier logic, I feel like I was saying that the shadows should be pointing in a north easterly direction. So I reckon if the, if the back to the base is in a southwesterly direction, we want to be going through this big brambly bush here. So I'm going to lead the way. I, in fact, this looks like it's almost been cleared. Do you reckon, is there a chance that a creature might have been through that or is that just yeah, a... Yeah, it does look very like a deer trail. Cheers, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we're currently walking through quite a brambly kind of bush, uh, spider webs wrapping themselves around my arms. Uh, <laughs> now, spider webs are a good sign. Why might they be a good sign? <laughs> you, <are you> okay. <laughs> Spiders might be a good sign. Um, okay, let's have a little think here. So why might that be good? Uh, hmm. So they're trying to catch, they're building cobwebs. Yeah. They're trying to catch flies. So why, why, <laughs> why don't we just see cobwebs absolutely everywhere? Um, so actually the wind effectively is like a spring cleaner. That makes it sense. It sort of comes through uh, and the, the spiders either have worked out to not spin their webs where the wind is going to whip them away because it's like having a house knocked down mm. or um, the ones that, that they have spun have survived where the wind doesn't get. Okay. So what we're affected, whenever you come across a lot of spiders' webs, you can say the wind doesn't whip through here that often. Right. And we know the wind tends to come from the southwest. So actually bumping into a load of spiders' webs is backing up your theory. Yeah. Beautiful light in this yeah. little clearing here. So we've just walked through the, what do you call it, brambles? or yeah. yeah, through the brambles. And we're now in a kind of forest clearing, which is actually, there's, it's, quite easier to walk through uh, it's very peaceful and there's light kind of streaming through the trees and we're going to walk sort of into the light is my plan 
right okay. now. Okay, I'm going to up the ante now. We've barely taken a few steps and I'm going to say you're not allowed to use the sun anymore because that's just too easy, clearly, you know. Uh, I want you to use the bottom of that tree to, to find, to check you're going the right way. Bottom of this tree, okay. First thing I notice here, which might be completely unrelated, is that we've got a few kind of lighter scuff marks here, yeah, which we don't have on the other side, but I can't really a see. A few animals have had a go at that, but uh, don't worry about that too much. Okay. Think about the shape of the tree itself, uh, in okay. particular the roots. So we've got a couple of we've got a couple of roots that are kind of almost knotted, like overlapping each other here. Um, two more thin ones there. Well, I'll give you another another hint. We've got two clues here. Uh, this this is uh, this blackening on the um, on one side of the tree is is a classic shade indicator. There are lichens thriving on one side, but but not the other. But the the, the first clue, um, uh, I'd like you to put your foot on the root that stretches furthest from the base of the tree. Okay. Okay, and now tell me why that is stretching furthest from the tree. Right, well that will be because it has to travel further to get water. It's not, not a bad guess, but you're probably finding it hard to guess at the moment because this is one of those rare, quite still days. But imagine, mm. you know, a strong wind coming through here. The trees have only got one mechanism to to hold themselves up against the wind. Right, so it's kind of like a state, it's like a stabilizer. Exactly. That makes sense. So the one that this is, if this is the key stabilizer, and then that is actually pointing in the direction that I, I've been claiming is southwest. Yeah, which is where the prevailing winds come from. Yeah. So so all other things being equal, which, which they rarely are in nature, so we're having to interpret different layers and stuff. But what you'll find is if you look across all of the base of all of these trees here, some roots are doing you know, hard to understand things, but the average will be that these roots, which are known as guy roots, in the same way we have guy ropes on a tent, mm. uh, stretch furthest from the tree on the side of the prevailing wind, wherever you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So another good tip, is that it doesn't actually matter how you're navigating, whether you're using a, an iPhone, a compass, a map, or natural navigation, is always to pick something, is to use your cue for direction and then pick something in the distance. Because otherwise what happens is you take your cue and then you end up, if, if we were seen from above, you end up doing a whole load of sort of wiggly, sort of banana type route. Yeah, because don't they say that um, if you're in the desert and you walk for long enough, then you'll do an entire circle? Yes, every, every human being denied reference to, to directional clues will walk in a circle. The only question is how big's the circle? Right. And it varies enormously. I mean, some people come back on themselves within a mile. Some people, it, you know, it might be 25 miles, but, but nobody can walk in a perfectly straight line without reference to something. Every time uh, an animal goes through a landscape, it makes changes and human beings are the same. So we we stamp our mark on a landscape and it starts you know with fire and ash changing changing the plants creating different mosses and nettles and things like that uh, and it leads um, up to um, I mean put another way if somebody built a village five miles over there we would notice very subtle changes here because there would be just enough people passing through here to get to that village 
that they'd create, uh, even if there wasn't a formal path, they'd create what some people call desire lines. Either there's a group of people here and they want to get to this place because human beings have created something they want to get to there. There's a pub and a church and various other things they want to get to. So that creates desire lines. In time, those desire lines become formal paths. But before they become formal paths, they, they, they change the landscape. And as we've seen, whenever people walk over something, they, they change the plants. Those in turn change the, change the animals. So it's, it's stretching things. And it, on the line between practical and philosophical, you've got things like the butterflies you see are determined by what people did 50 years ago in the area because they will change the wildflowers, the wildflowers will determine which butterflies. So it's, it's, it's close to that, a lot of things like chaos theory and the, the butterfly effect, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings in Australia, it changes the weather here. Well, it's true. You know, we can't always, you know, we can't say, well, that cloud is up there because of what a butterfly did, you know, in Darwin. But, but theoretically it holds. Mm. So natural navigation is not about you know, just a bag of 200 or 500 ways we can find north or south. It's about understanding that nothing's random. How are you feeling? Okay, so I reckon, well, this is another test. We've probably walked a few hundred meters, I'd say. Uh, is that about right? <laughs> uh, a little, little bit less, probably. Bit less. Yeah, but but how if you, if your life depended on it, how would you, you know, you'd have to do it from the start. But what are the methods you could use for for working out exactly how far? So what I would do is I know I can probably sprint a hundred meters in about fourteen seconds or something like that. So I'd probably sprint, time myself for fourteen seconds and do that a few times and see. <laughs> see how long it took me to get to the edge. Okay, you, you're on exactly the right tracks. That would get quite exhausting over several miles, <laughs> wouldn't it? But, but you're on the right track. So if we know how long it takes us to cover, uh, and that's used on land and at sea. So sailors quite often talk about an island being two days sail away. And like all natural navigation, it just starts with a very rough idea. There's no need to get pernickety. But when you're doing it, you know, at the sharper end, you, you count paces. You need to know, you know, and the, the Greeks had dedicated soldiers. Uh, called Bematists who would count paces and they were accurate over very long distances to 98%. So if they thought they'd travelled, you know, 100 miles, they were probably, you know, within a couple of miles of that. Um, possibly the most boring job in the world. Wow, but, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like counting your paces. Yeah. It feels like to me we're coming to the edge of the forest that we've been walking through because I can see a kind of, I don't know, it feels like it's getting a bit lighter over there. I can see the gaps between the trees. Excellent. Yeah, you're noticing the the light levels change, but you also might either consciously or or unconsciously have noticed that some of the trees are changing. Ah, I had not noticed that. So we might that might be the edge of the woodland, or it might be a change into another type of woodland, or mm. you know we won't know until we get out there and explore it. I guess. Okay. I feel like we did a kind of loop, and we're currently doing a shortcut. But I feel like we should cross back over a path. That's well, that's interesting. Again, culturally, something I discovered um, through research is one thing all indigenous cultures do is keep uh, what we might think of as almost like a sort of a mental record of where they are relative to other things. So if you, you know, walking in the desert with a Tuareg or something like that, you know, you could ask them which way is north and they'll, they'll look at you like it's the stupidest question because they're just not interested but if you say to them point to your home village they can always do it and in fact they can point to villages they might not have been to for for a couple of years because that's their way of keeping a, a mental record so because in wild environments your life might depend on doing that it becomes it becomes intuitive
back into some brambles here. So what's interesting is what can we hear apart from the plane? Birds. Yeah. We haven't heard many birds. And I was I once did a it's one of the toughest natural navigation exercises I've done, not the longest by a long way because it only took a few hours, but crossing Kielder Forest in uh, in Northumberland. And uh, it was one of the toughest ones I'd done because the forest there is plantation. So it's homogenous, everything appears the same. And it's physically very tough. You end up sort of scratched all over your face. I wish I'd taken proper goggles. But the delight was, you know, just as I was starting to get a bit hacked off with the whole thing, suddenly heard birdsong. Because, you know, we talked earlier, you don't get as much variety of life in the heart of a forest as you do at the edge. Mm. So the fact we're hearing lots of birds is a very good sign. It means we can't be, you know, a kilometer from, from the edge of the forest because we wouldn't get that richness of sound. Wow, that's good news. Have you ever got completely lost? Yeah, I, I got proper lost when I was 19 and I, I led a, a friend called Sam up a, an active volcano in Indonesia called Rinjani. Uh, and partly because I wanted to experience some full-on natural navigation and partly, to be honest, just because I want to save a bit of money, uh, we decided um, in my uh, lack of wisdom to take no map, no compass. This was pre-access to GPS and uh, no guide. Um, a tent we borrowed off the hostel, which it turned out it leaked. No cold weather clothing, no survival equipment, no means of communicating. Um, anyway, long story cut short, we got within uh, about 500 feet of the summit before my friend um, started to show some signs of hypothermia, all my fault. And in our race to get lower to warm up, um, I got us lost uh, and we ended up walking for three days without food. <laughs> uh, in the end, in the end we, our, our only way of finding our way out, we were getting quite desperate, was we kept seeing tracks and thinking, right, that's, that's going to help us. But then they turn out to be animal trails. Uh, and we were, we were about to ditch our rucksacks. We were really quite exhausted. And, and psychologically, we didn't realize that we probably could have carried on for weeks. But in our minds, we thought it was pretty much over. Um, and we were getting desperate. And then we suddenly noticed another track. And we thought, oh, that's just an animal trail. And, uh, you know, we didn't give it much hope. Uh, and then we went and had a closer look. And we noticed as we got closer that there were two parallel trails and we thought well animals do a lot of weird things but they don't walk perfectly parallel and then we looked in the mud as we approached it and we saw some tar tracks and it was the very end of a, a four by four track so we followed that for i can't remember exactly it was about an hour and then we found a village where they didn't speak one word of english we did all those cliche things like saying coca-cola you know <laughs> um, they just looked at us blankly and we eventually we, we got ourselves sort of hobbled back um, but it was interesting psychologically because it is we were asking ourselves questions like do people actually go into a restaurant and ask for food? You know, you start to lose, you know, in our minds, it was, it was, it was bad. So, we appear to have found what looks to me like a path, or at least a, a way that people have walked down. We've got a little kind of trampled, sort of darker patch here. Yeah. Mini crossroads here, or like a T-junction in the path. So the question is, left or right at this point? And I'm going to say right. Based on what? Based on the direction, the directional tools we've been using so far. So keeping to the right of the sun, essentially. Uh, so we've been kind of trying, we've been moving south, trying to find a path. And now yeah. we have found it. I think we want to move right on, on this path. Absolutely, and that, that's a tried and tested navigational technique, is that bit where you were yeah. standing originally, yeah. that is still part of the path. So, it's quite a subtle example, but it looks to me um, that more people actually turn that way. So if you were completely lost and you followed that, 
you'd follow this track, there'd be another junction, you keep on doing that and you'll probably get to the nearest village. Have, have you been to many cultures or societies around the world where na navigation is more, more of a central part of, of their lives, say for getting water or food or for long distance commutes to work and things like that? Yeah, I've, I've spent um, uh, a bit of time in the heart of Borneo um, with the Dayak, the Penan Dayak, uh, understanding how they find their way. And it's fascinating, you know, they have a forensic understanding of where they are relative to rivers. Mm. So we see a river, we might even notice which way the water's flowing, but to the Dayak, that's their, that's their whole sense of where they are. Um, it's really hard to explain, but one, one example would be when we were, we made camp in, in, uh, by a river in Borneo and I lost the light. I was, I was trying to um, light, light something to make some tea. Uh, and it was two, two Panandayak, uh, an interpreter uh, slash fixer and me. And I, the, the, the interpreter could see I'd lost the light. He said, what have you lost? Oh, there's a light. And one of the, one of the Dayak saw where it was and said through the interpreter, it's there just upstream of the mess tin. That was the moment I suddenly understood how these people see the world. You know, I've been struggling for days to, you know, they don't, they couldn't care less about north, south, east, west. It's not much use to them. Um, uh, they certainly don't have maps, compasses, and obviously not GPS. Mm. But whenever they're trying to understand where things are relative to them, it's all relative to the river. And I think in a sense, we all have that. You know, if you think of your local patch, wherever it is in the world, there'll be certain dominant things. You know, if you think how you give a... a you know, someone you've met who's coming to meet you, you know, coming around for a meal or something. If you give them directions how to get to your place, there will be certain prominent landmarks. Yep. You know, you might say turn left at the post office or, you know, keep going perhaps until you hit the river or whatever. Um, but that, that's part of how we orient ourselves. And, and you know, I, I try and learn as much as I can from, from indigenous cultures, but, but also from, from, you know, you know, urbanised ones as well. There's, there's, there are techniques that, that just apply in cities. But that's not something I really associate much with Britain and the history of England. But is that something that once upon a time, going way back, uh, the early settlers in, in the UK would have, would have done? Yes, definitely. The, um, all our ancestors had these skills, otherwise we wouldn't exist. It was, it was part of a you know, necessary sort of survival um, kit that every human being would have had you know, definitely 20,000 years ago. And then once, you know, once we hit sort of 10,000 years ago in the agricultural revolution, we start to see, you know, the likelihood of some of these skills being, being less essential. So it would then perhaps have become more specialized. So if we look at the people, you know, within industrialized societies who still have these skills, it's, it's you know, people like hunters, the military, people like that. So where the necessity is there, the skills are there. Um, we see a bridge to this knowledge, you know, in things like law, L-O-R-E law, um, because that's, that's sort of our, that, that's our, our last sort of cultural contact with some of this knowledge. And I think that's one of the reasons people love weather law. Everyone's probably heard Red Sky at Night, Shepherd's Delight and that sort of thing. And it works. Um, so it's, uh, it's, um, it's both culturally interesting and can be very useful. Poetic. Yeah. Is that, so that's true, Red Sky at Night, Shepherd's Delight. Yeah, and it's like so much of the stuff we're discussing, it's, it's bolting two quite simple things together to create something that people then, you know, have some value for. So 
red sky at night, what you're saying is I can see quite far to the west because the sun sets, you know, roughly in the western sky. Um, the Shepherd's Delight saying good weather to come because most of our weather comes from the west. If you can see a long way into the west, it means there's nothing particularly nasty out there. Oh, Greg, there's a, there's a nice example I'd like us to have a, a look at here. Uh, again, on first glance, just some greenery. We take a second, we recognise it's a, a hazel tree, just a bunch of leaves. But if we, if we take another moment and just have a look at the leaves themselves, what we'll notice is they're not all identical and they're not all the same size. So if I pluck a leaf from this side of the tree here, let's just take this one here as sort of fairly average of that, that branch there. And I ask you to hold on to that for me. I'm just gonna climb in here. You can follow me if you want. And I'm gonna pluck a leaf from the, the shady side of the tree and compare those two. Okay, so one of them is, well, the one from the shady side is about twice the size as the first one that you picked. Uh, is it a slightly different texture? It feels yeah. like it's a slightly different texture. They're quite similar colours, aren't they? Yeah. But I'm guessing, because I haven't felt them both together, that this one will feel a tiny bit thinner than this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. true. Yeah. So what we've got here is a sun leaf, which is the smaller one, which feels a bit thicker, mm. and a shade leaf, which is much, much, much bigger and thinner. And trees have these two leaves as their way of coping with very different light environments. So the tree doesn't care about north, south, east or west. It cares about getting energy, of course. And if, if a leaf is getting enough energy and it's happy, it stays as a sun leaf. If it's in a shady spot, then a chemical message says to the leaf, this isn't working, you need to pull your socks up. And what it does is effectively grows much, much bigger and thinner. Sometimes they go darker in colour. This one hasn't, but what it's doing is just trying to make the most of the little bit of light that's reaching there. Okay. So the leaves on the south side of a tree tend to be smaller and lighter in colour and thicker than the leaves on the north side of a tree. So that's quite a quick win if you yeah, are trying yeah. to navigate. Yeah, that's yeah, it's fun. Quite an easy way. Right. <laughs> we have now rejoined the path that we first started on and I can see there are tons of stinging nettles everywhere, which I now know means that this is somewhere that humans come a lot. Uh, and we're yeah we're just approaching the starting off point. Yeah, you did it, Greg. <laughs> you did it. It's uh you know you jo join the dots, use the clues, uh, and uh, yeah you got us out of trouble. Nice one. Nice one. Cheers. <laughs> do, you, do you think you're converted? Do you think you'd like to you know take your eyes off off the uh, the map or the screen for a little bit and just just sense your way? Yeah, definitely. I think the main thing is something you said quite early on is emptying your mind of everything else that's happening like of your emails and what you're doing tonight and who you're seeing tomorrow and actually start focusing on the stuff around you which is like it's like a kind of mindfulness it's, it's paying attention to the little things which is something that i don't think i i definitely don't do it enough but well, i'll leave you with a, a little a uh, couple of little gifts um in in towns look for TV satellite dishes in the UK they tend to point close to southeast so that's quite a fun one to work with but the bigger the bigger more useful thing is the question which way am I looking just looking out of a window of an office you can ask yourself the question which way am I looking north south east west and then use the clues out there use the sun use the clouds use the way people are moving just asking yourself that question which way am I looking will make you see the world in a, in a, in a new and fresh way all right when I get back to the office I'm going to challenge everyone to look out the window and say what way is that go for it and I'll let you know <laughs> In a world where we find directions to just about anywhere using that machine in our pocket, 
It'd be easy to dismiss this idea of natural navigation as a little bit irrelevant. Like a romantic throwback, like a vinyl record or a Polaroid picture that serves more nostalgic purposes than anything else. But after spending a few hours with Tristan in his forest, it was clear that the purpose of his mission runs way deeper than this. Because this isn't about getting there the hard way for the sake of it. It's about noticing all the minute details around us, whether it be tree roots cracking their way through a pavement in a city, or seeing which way TV satellite dishes are facing, or observing the way the clouds are moving in the sky. With all of the noise and conveniences of 21st century life, I think it's really, really easy for us all to just switch off from everything that surrounds us. And what Tristan does brilliantly is help us to observe the simple, logical form of the world and to enjoy it. Thank you so much to Tristan for taking me out for some natural navigation. Thanks also to my producer, Alana Chance, who braved her fear of spiders to scramble through the bushes and the brambles. Thank you also to my assistant producer, Katie Callan, and George D and Keith Drew from Rough Guides. And remember to subscribe to the podcast now to make sure you don't miss an episode. And if you're really enjoying it, give us a review and a five-star rating on the podcast app, and it will help other people to discover the show. Thanks a lot, and see you soon. Hold up. 